0: Let's pray. Lord, once again, we are so thankful for the privilege to come here and to open up your word. As we do, we remember that your word is a perfect and pure word. We remember also, God, that your word in every part of it is profitable. From all of it, we receive instruction and correction and training. It deepens our understanding of our need and our dependency. It exalts our our grasp of you and your being and your power and your mercy. It shows to us those things that you have done, are doing, and will yet do. And so we ask God in this time as we consider this your word, that you would be pleased once again by your spirit to assist me that I might speak faithfully and clearly the words that you would have me declare. And for all of your people that you've gathered, God, give them ears to hear, hearts to understand. We pray that you would continually impress your truth upon our mind and indeed upon our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning as we come to the church in Thyatira, we're really reaching the last of the churches we see in chapter 2 as we have it written, as we come to this fourth church. Now when we look at these churches, we've begun to see this pattern that takes place where Christ introduces himself, he who is the head of the church, he who, who will come and judge the living and the dead, and after he introduces himself in these powerful and distinctive ways that he does, he then transitions to recognize the things that they are doing and have done that are faithful. Then he also looks upon them and will declare to them areas of disobedience, areas of deficiency. So you move from those commendations to those condemnation, to those words uh, uh, of, of rich encouragement, to those words of rebuke. And and we see this pattern develop, and I don't want us to begin to take it lightly, because this pattern is there, and it's making it clear of this consistent power and this consistent person. As we come now to Thyatira, without going into a, uh, too much detail in the cities, because I don't want to always get bogged down with history lessons but some of the events are nonetheless connected and as you come to this particular place unlike the previous uh, city that we were in Pergamum this one was not a center of emperor worship this was a smaller place and the primary God recognized them was Apollo but more than that, this was a little bit of a smaller town, sort of off the road from between uh, Pergamum and Sardis. And this, road, this is a place that really more than being so involved and so deeply ingrained in religious affairs, they had another form of religion other than the culture, ones of their false gods that were prominent. Also in this place, they had a strong commitment to the religion of materialism, covetousness, and greed. You know, words that pretty much have no relevance today, right? No, see, that's the interesting thing is when we sometimes hear about the unfaithfulness of, of, of others and their following of idols and false gods, we generally can't easily identify with their forms of idolatry. The things that are going on in this place, we ought to. This is the city from which uh, Lydia, that we meet in in the book of Acts, sitting there by the river at Philippi, was uh, from this area. They were known to be kind of a center of guilds. Which you can think of like unions, people who were, um, there were uh, those who, who were involved in textiles and dyeing things uh, into various colors. There were, there were guilds of metal workers of various kinds. It was really a, a, a seat of, of activity, of manufacturing. And, and, it, and it gave rise to, to slightly different things and slightly different emphasis, where even the tendency among the people there would be, even maybe the converts there would be to think, we're, we're, this is not as pagan as some of the other towns. We, we don't have some of the problems to the degree that they face in other places. And sometimes that that notion comes into people's minds. We don't face the same degrees of trouble and the same degrees of persecution. The enemy's not coming at us violently from outside persecuting us and throwing us in prison and martyrs taking place. And so then we sometimes mistake the fact that the enemy is still hard at work, but the attack is from within. The attack's from one of those among us who is beloved accepted, even influential, and maybe at times in the past had a season of seeming faithfulness, and then has just begun to drift and fade another direction. And this is what, uh, what's kind of going on here in Thyatira. First thing I want us to consider this morning as we take up this section in Thyatira, is again it starts with what I would call a staggering introduction. The staggering introduction here, as Jesus is the one sending these letters, he said, the introduction goes like this, and it is in verse 18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished Bronze. Now, when I, when I read that out, it's very important for us to, be, to, to start to put those pieces together. These descriptions are not simply to stir up in our mind a visual image. Because that's a hard visual image to, to see. Eyes like fiery flames and feet like burnished bronze. It's a, it's a strange description. And so we'll consider that. But before we do, I want us to see the simple thing. It begins with this phrase, the words of the Son of God. That, that, that very phrase should give us pause, and we know that whatever follows is very serious. I mean, this is the one, remember, in, when Paul is giving that gospel presentation in Athens, and he tells them about God is going to judge the world by a man who he raised from the dead the fact that there would be one coming that it is christ the son of god who would judge the living and the dead that is a serious thing so the one that is speaking is the one to whom all authority has been given to whom all judgment has been handed over so again we go back he's never in our tendency in, in any time there are discussions in our lives Where people, generally, if people come to us with words of praise and words of encouragement, we are quick to agree with that. That is right. I am quite good. Yes, uh, you know, uh, you don't need to say more, but if you want to, I'm listening and I will continue to agree with everything you have to say. But then when it transitions and correction is given, Here's a concern that I have. What's our normal response? That. Oh, please. I want to hear more. Please open up about that. No. Our concerns almost immediately. What do we rush to? No, I think you've misunderstood me. I think defensiveness. Self-protection. One we want to hear over and over again. The other we'd rather it stop and and not hear a word of it. And, And... when somebody else shares with us, we can disagree with them. And maybe we could walk away and say, you know what? Their issue with me, jealous. You know, they, they see me. They don't have what I have. They want what I want. And so their criticism of me is absolutely unfounded. It's because they got problems, not me. Isn't that our, our natural tendency? We can't do that here. The church at Thyatira could not do this here because the introduction is the words of the Son of God. There's no second guessing. There's no questioning. There's no denying. There's no skirting the issue. There's no escape. This is the word of Christ. And again, he's not asking for you to share your testimony and experience, to share your motives and your reasons. He's not asking you to call character witnesses. And why is that? Because he needs not. He shatters the mighty without investigation because he already knows all things before the living word of God. All motives and intentions of the heart are laid bare before the one to whom we must give account. So when, with that introduction, it's just like you, you remember and consider the reading of Job And throughout the book of Job, after you get through the first two chapters You begin to hear, I have a complaint I have kind of an issue, I have kind of a challenge But then when Elihu speaks and then God comes in after that We remember Job says of all his former complaining and all of his hesitation and all of his confusions He says this I lay my hand over my mouth I have spoken things that I did not understand Well, the moment this introduction comes the words of the son of God Yeah, I got I got nothing to answer back I got nothing to say I just need to listen and if there is rebuke I need, I repent. If there is commendation, I need to continue. And so as, as we take this up, the words of the Son of God, the, the concept even of the Son of God, we cannot take that lightly. He is the unique and only Son of God. We are adopted in the beloved. We become heirs and joint heirs, but he alone in his essence and being is God. The reason why the the Jews at one point wanted to lay hold of him and take his life is one of the times where he said, he is the son of God, my father who is in heaven. He's calling God his father. He's making himself out to be equal with God. Kill him. That was the sense that the Jews stirred up because as we know, the scriptures tell us the gospel, which includes the fact that Christ is his, own, his only son, which includes the fact that all men are in their nature, slaves to sin, captives, imprisoned, inescapable on their own, dead and unresponsive, that condition, men don't like to hear that, and the Scripture reminds us that Jesus Christ is the only one, the Son of God, who has all divine rights, who who in Himself embodies all divine perfections, the exact radiance of His Father. And this this idea, this the, or this simple statement of uh, uh, the Son of God, this phrase appears forty three times in the New Testament son of god sometimes it's questioning if you are the son of god tell us plainly but more often than not it's stated with expectation and amazement My, uh, when the angel first came and was had spoken to mary and to joseph he spoke like this in luke 135 the angel said to her The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In Mark 15, when Jesus is being crucified, that centurion sees all that has taken place in the darkening of the suns, the earthquakes that shatter, the the humble... And yielding response of Christ to the will of his father and yielding up his spirit, finishing the justification of his people. And this centurion says, surely this one was the son of God. We're told in Romans chapter 4 that Jesus was declared to be the son of God with power as he brought him from the grave. And So we've got this repeated idea. He is the son of God. This is an offense to the Jews Even I remember when I was back in seminary and I was taking a missions class We had a man come in for the missions class who was involved in missionary and translation work in Muslim countries And he said we are in the process of re-translating into Arabic the entire New Testament because The New Testament that we presently have is too offensive to the Muslim people. To which, believe it or not, someone may have raised their hand and someone may have inquired what particularly in this translation is an offense to them. They said they are horribly offended by the notion that Jesus would be the son of God. And so in all of those places where the scripture says, Son of God, we, we're, we're changing it to the, the Holy One of God. That way we have a better opportunity to communicate to them without being a stumbling block or without being an offense to them. But hold on just a moment. So you are reworking the gospel as given by God in order to remove the offense and the stumbling block. Do you not know that the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation? And it is a rock of offense. It is a stumbling block to the Jew, to those who, who are committed to their own religious views. It is an offense. It is foolishness. To those who think that there are many ways and many gods in the Gentile world. We can't remove either the foolishness or the offensiveness of the gospel to simplify it. Because if there is no son, there is no salvation. The father sent the son to be the savior of the world. You deny the son, you deny the father. You have not the sun. You have not God. We cannot and must not lighten it up. Well, we need to make it more acceptable, more palatable, easier to understand. No, we need to make it clear, abundantly clear. We declare it in all of its glorious, glorious radiant truth. And we let the Spirit of God attend to it with power. Bringing forth the dead from their graves, opening the eyes of the blind, opening the ears of the deaf, causing the, those imprisoned to break forth and be set free, causing those who are dumb to be able to sing his praises, bringing that regenerative, new birth, transformative work that only grace can accomplish through the Son of God. You deny the Son of God to be equal, because then they get confused. And, and, and they, one of the things that so offends them is the notion that God would be three in one. All right, so, so you're going to avoid now the Holy Spirit too, and you're going to avoid the Son. What are you doing? Do we avoid anything that the Scripture's give? And So when we see this, this is the Son of God. We remember his words as he comes towards the end of his earthly ministry and speaks to his disciples All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me That's the one who's speaking And then of this one who all authority is given to it gives this simple description eyes like flames of fire Which again, those terms are are, are quite confusing to us, but to kind of uh, put these pieces together and help us understand it. Uh, The scripture tells us this just later down in the same uh, section in chapter 2, verse 20 of Revelation. As God speaks of the judgment, he's going to bring on the Jezebel and her children. It says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each one according to your works. That is more of a descriptive way or an explanation of what we saw earlier. I am he who searches the heart and the mind. That's what the eyes of fire or eyes like fire often tends to, to reveal in this historic context. It's those eyes that, that light things up it it comes from simple uh, experiential understandings again when they wanted light when they wanted to search and see what was going on around them and search in the depths of darkness how would they do that there's no flipping on a light the lights were all by fire you would light a torch And from that torch, you would see it would be that which provides light, that which things cannot no longer hide in the darkness because light is now manifested. So again, here you've got one who is the son of God, who's invested with all divine authority and nothing can be hidden from him. He sees everything. You can't push it even down to the deepest darkness. And he needs no other external sources of light. Because within himself is the full radiance and the full knowledge to search out and know everything. What's also... um, Kind of interesting about this. We we do remember also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you see these kind of things, 1 Corinthians 3 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will be dis- disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Fire will test each man's work. So he sees it, but not just with observation. He sees it for examination and for judgment. But I want us to note this because it's kind of a fun thought when you look at it. Our translations, for the most part, says in Revelation 2.23, that he searches the mind and the hearts. Well, some who might have an older translation with them, it will say, who searches the reins and the heart. Which again, that, that, uh, that word really doesn't immediately translate to who we are today. If I would ask you, how, you know, how are your reins doing? Most people would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, the same kind of thing. When he says, search the heart, is he talking about a very uh, a, a cardio examination? I mean, is he gonna to check to make sure that there's no clogged arteries, that there's no deficiencies, the pump is working right? No, that, that object is reflective of what? The heart, the will, the emotions, and we in our society also connect the heart with emotions and the core of a person's being. The word that's been translated here, minds, is actually literally kidneys, which is not something that we would, you know what, that's a good question, give me a second, I'm going to mull that over in my kidneys, and then I'll give you an answer. Do we talk like that? generally we don't but uh, the, the idea was simply that w- was often this with within the Jewish mind And you see it laced throughout the uh, throughout the Old Testament Let me g- give you those verses before I uh, give the explanation in Jeremiah eleven twenty 20 Says both O Lord of hosts who judges righteously Who tests the heart and examines the mind which is actually examines the kidneys and the inner man, literally. Jeremiah 17:10, I the Lord search the heart, that's the inner man, the mind, will, and heart, and test the mind, the kidneys, to give to every man according to his way. What's interesting is you see this regular pattern that thorough testing and examination for judgment combines these two words: the kidneys and the heart. And, and, and practically speaking within the Jewish idea, I mean, the heart was sort of at the center of man. You want to go even deeper? Deeper than the heart? You get down into the kidneys. That, that was the notion. So there, there, there's, there's no place where you can kind of push the secrets and push the sin and, and push them that it's going to get out of there. And this is the one who's examining it. So once that's laid out, it's like, oh, he sees everything. And then it says, with feet like burnished bronze, which again, we don't make shoes of that very often. But let me give you two verses of the Old Testament that lay out these apocalyptic analogies for us. In Daniel chapter 7, there though it is speaking of the fourth beast, it gives us a description how the Jewish mind would contemplate the idea of bronze feet. And it says this, of the fourth beast, down towards the end of that verse, who has teeth like iron and claws, or paws like bronze, which devour and broke in pieces and stamped what is left with left with, with its feet. So bronze claws, bronze paws, bronze feet are often a reference to what? stamping in pieces. You got solid solid shoes. Arise Micah 4:13 arise and thresh, o daughter of Zion, for I will make you uh, make your horn an iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall Beat in pieces many people. Now that sounds like an unpleasant thing. I get it. But bronze feet is a reference to shattering things, breaking them in pieces. The old King James there says to break in shivers. You know just such so this is the manifestation he sees it all you can't push it down to where he won't get it and the one who is the son of God with all authority who sees and tests and knows all thing that it can't be hidden from he's coming and he's not coming with pillows he's coming with bronze feet and they are shattering Ooh. Now, after what, this staggering introduction, we move on to what I would call a sub, superb initial inspection. I mean, it is wonderful what the son who sees all says about this church in verse 19. It says this, I know your works. Now, we've seen that with a lot of the other churches. I know your works. But look at the way he just keeps going with this church in Thyatira. I know your works. Your love, your faith. Not like the church at Ephesus that had these works but had lost the love that they had at first. Here, they have works, but what else? Oh, they've got love. They've got faith. They've got service. I mean, they're active, they're engaged. So, they're, so there's, there's work in the community. There's work towards one another. Their service to God is full of love and full of faith and patient endurance. It's ongoing. It's unrelenting. It's continuing. And then it goes on. to it, it, it has steadfastness. It has fortitude. And then it goes on to even say, and your latter works exceed those that you did at first. What you're doing, instead of like the church at Ephesus who needs to return to their first love, this particular church, their love, their faith, their works, their service exceed what they were at first. It breaks my heart that, that modern Christianity tends to have an idea of comfort with the notion that when a person is first saved... They're really on fire for the Lord. But you know, over time as they mature, you know, they're you know they, they, they they're not as hungry for the gospel and the word. And as they mature, they're not as active in sharing the gospel with relatives and neighbors. And, and how in the world do we live in, in, in a society where even within churches... We would, the idea would be put forward that maturity means now a minimizing of those glorious things that grace has worked within us a hunger for the, and and thirst for the word of God, Uh, a desire to be of service to him and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. This, what I love about what's being said here is that's not it. Remember, as you read through the scriptures, it talks about even those who will um, reach old age. Even those who go to the time of gray hairs. The scriptures use an interesting phrase that they will be full of sap and very green. Which on the surface doesn't sound great. You know, if someone would say, brother, you are full of sap. Oh, man. But the idea is when you looked at a tree... If a tree is full of sap and very green, does it seem like, oh, boy, we better get that taken down before it falls on a house? No. If it's full of sap and very green, it's like, that is an exceedingly healthy tree. We're in great shape here. See, in the world, uh, we, we, we have this experience where there, are, there is a period of growth. And then you kind of supposedly reach a peak and level off and some people just stay there and then then decline you know you grow to a certain height but then you start to shrink a little bit you know you increase in energy and vitality and then your vitality starts to diminish a bit you your your knowledge and acumen and recall and memory and then what i used to be able to remember those And, and and physically we experience those those flows of seasons of life and we've had the the tragic notion of moving that into spiritual life into our walk with God in grace and that is not the case it can be that those who are old in the flesh can none the best less be like Spiritual babes in Christ indeed are uh, unlike the 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 notion where you, you reach a certain size and you're done We can continue to grow and enlarge and enlarge and we can strive by God's grace in a sense to be like Spiritual Giants because the growth doesn't end they speak of some kinds of animals crocodiles and such sea turtles and such that apparently as long as they live, they're growing, right? And they say the same thing with regard to human ears. So get ready for that. You know, there is, But that is a real, vital spiritual reality. Grow more and more. We should not come to the point where we look back and say, "I remember when I was so zealous. I remember when I was so earnest. I remember when I was so active." I've spoken with with people before, and and some. I remember one uh, man sharing with me. He said, "You know, there was a time uh, in my 30s that whenever whenever the church doors were open, we were there. Whenever there was a program, we were active. You know, we were trying to serve in every way that we could. But that's oh, just so hard now because life and and business and this and that. It's like I understand the challenges of life." But we don't look back and say, oh, yeah, I I rest on our laurels what I was. What we are is not what we will be. And unlike those great sports uh, athletes, former Olympians who look back on what they used to be and how great they used to be, and they're kind of looking up at where they used to be. We, by the grace of God, can always look back and say, Wow, God has continued to be with me. His sanctifying grace is continuing to enable me. If we're looking back and we're looking up, it's a time for repentance, brothers and sisters. And so, the, uh, the, we, they have it, and it is increasing. I mean, when, I, when you read that, you think, Oh, this, is, this has got to be the best church they're doing everything right. And I want you to be cautious because your tendency is with all of those things, our human tendency, because we do this with one another, would be, but I have this against you. Oh, why are you nitpicking? You know, why, why, why are you just pointing out all, all those little things? Well, we don't play that game with God. Why are you nitpicking? Why are you doing this? He deserves our all and our everything. And one of the glorious things that we, there's two elements to this. When God says, but I have this against you, it's it's a correction that's a call for repentance. But but note this also. It's also the kind of thing that we get to say this. When he said, but I have this against you, he didn't say, but I'm done with you but I have this against you so it's a reminder yeah I still need grace I still need growth which is every single one of us every single day and, 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 and God help me but it's also this he still has this against me but he's not against me he's for me and he's even telling me what he has against me because he is for me his correction, his discipline is a display of glorious love. And I want it. And so, so you know, our, again, when we hear, I have, but I have this against you, or when we think, oh, that God would have these things, he would see deficiencies in me, not that we would cower, that we would repent and commit, but that we would also remember, he has not forsaken me, he has not turned on me. I have this against you. And more than that, we've, we in our humanity tend to have this tendency. And we can be thankful that this is not the way that God is towards his, those that he's drawn to himself. We can, in our loved ones or those around us, they may have a multitude of pretty decent qualities. But they got these one or two things that just drive us <laughs> nuts. And you know what begins to happen? We tend to focus on those one or two things, and we tend to forget all of the appreciable things, all of the encouraging things, all of the blessed things. I'm so thankful that God is not like us in that respect. How encouraging is it that in in each of these, God doesn't start out, you are doing this he starts out each one of these to his children. I know your works. I, I, I see your faithfulness. I, I see your efforts. I see your service. I see your works. But I also have this against you. We need to learn to cultivate those kind of realities more in our lives and, and to, to cultivate graciousness between one another, that recognition. Yeah, if you look at anyone individually, look. We have not the perfect discernment of Christ. But even in our limitation, I'm pretty sure I could uh, spend a little time with each of you and find a flaw. Pretty sure you don't even need to spend time with me. You've already got a list of my flaws. Hey, I understand. That's the way it is. But we don't want to focus our whole extent on those things and so I'm so encouraged that God lays these things out, but now he begins After a, a superb initial inspection he begins a sad Indictment and look at this listen to how this sad indictment goes, but I have this against you That you Tolerate that woman Jezebel I'm in verse 20 Who calls herself a prophetess And is teaching and seducing my servants To practice sexual immorality And to eat food sacrificed to idols So they seemed to be doing everything right Themselves for the most part They're loving They're serving Their faith is genuine But here's an interesting error their error is not that they are sinning and doing wicked themselves as a practice. Their error is that they are tolerating Jezebel doing it. They are tolerating sin within their own group. Well, look the other way. We want to be, be characterized by love. Judge not lest you be judged. You know, we want God had mercy on us We want to be merciful to everyone else and there's a degree of truth surely to all of those statements when rightly understood But we've got to understand things a little bit deeper this strong indictment now to understand this uh, The statement here is Jezebel that woman Jezebel now practically speaking Jezebel is a character from the Old Testament so it's unlikely that this is a reference to a specific lady who's actually named Jezebel in that church, though it's possible. And it might be that providentially the Jezebel in that church just happens to bear remarkable similarity to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And if you were to look in, in certain places in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31, it tells us about her. During the time that Israel had been split into Israel and Judah, you came down to a time where a man named Ahab, King Ahab, not Ahab of the arabs King Ahab was the king of Israel, not of Judah. Israel was the more apostate of the of the two divisions. And then in order to sort of ingratiate himself and solidify his strength and power. It tells us sort of in uh, uh, chapter 16 of 1 Kings verse 31 that he married the daughter of King Ethbaal, the king of the Zidonians. By doing that, he sort of shored up his strength and relationship with the Phoenicians of that time. And so he married this Jezebel, who herself was very, it was coming from a pagan background. So much so that the, the scriptures is when he married her, he then went and served the balls, the idols, and worshiped them. It even goes so far as to tell us in 1 Kings 21, verse 25, this there was none. Who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Wow, that's a big statement, isn't it? Whom? Jezebel, his wife, incited. (laughs) So you see, and he acted very abominably going after other idols. So, Jezebel was one who incited others to evil now it's speculated and not unreasonably so Jezebel was the wife of the king and leader of Israel at that time it's speculated the possibility that this there was a woman who was the wife of a church leader in Thyatira who had kind of because he was a pastor elder, a position of influence, and people listened to her, begins to, begins to declare herself a prophetess, one of, one of wisdom. And if, if, if they start to speak against her, maybe, you know, he's a church leader, and so people are cautious. Whatever the case is, they tolerated her. Whether it was because of, of her relationship with a person of prominence in the context of the church, she began to sin. She began to involve herself in things that are, were wicked. Now, we, you, there's a little bit of a challenge whenever we wrestle with this. The scriptures, and it's very healthy for us to understand this, often tie together the concepts of idolatry and immorality. Adultery, whoring, fornication, those those acts of the flesh are constantly compared with the spiritual analogy of serving and seeking anything and anyone other than God. Because God is the one who deserves our faithfulness. He deserves our commitment. He deserves our allegiance. And so to give it to another is an act of unfaithfulness. And strangely enough, in, in, in the experiences of mankind and even in the pagan practices of the past, these things often went hand in hand. The festivals that would gather together in the worship of pagan gods often involved tremendous degrees of debauchery. That w- and, and so here is this Jezebel, and she is leading them astray. And they they are, now, again, Jezebel is herself going to be condemned. Those who are joining the uh, Jezebel and the things that she's doing are going to be condemned. But remember, he's not saying, I have this against Jezebel. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Yeah, what Jezebel's doing is wrong. But here's our tendency is to look at others and say, hey, who am I to judge? What they do, that's between them and God. What we do, what I do, that's between me and God. Have you heard those kind of things before? That is wrong. That is not loving the brother. Matthew 18 reminds us, if you see your brother in sin, what do you do? You go to him. And you call him out of that. And if he refuses, you go and you bring some more with you. You don't, well, I tried. <laughs> he, he didn't listen, you know. I give up. There's no relenting. There's no compromising. There, there is a degree in which with this kind of tolerance. When, when, we, when we evidence sort of a, a neutrality in the face of such wickedness. It's tantamount to complicity. We need to be very careful about that, because we don't want, uh, the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, of that horrible sin that was taking place in that church. These sorts of sins ought not even be named among you. Goes on to say, purge that evil out from among you it says um, in 1st Corinthians chapter 5 it goes on when someone says judge not yet lest you be judged they're told in chapter 5 to judge this one who is in sin to hand him over to Satan and it's told even in verse 12 of chapter 5 for what have I to do judging outsiders is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge Wait a second, that verse does not get near as much public play as judge not yet lest you be judged. Again, we're not judging the final outcome of their soul. We are, in accordance with God's words, judging their present practice. As unfit, unbecoming, unacceptable. Even in the words of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when, when Paul writes there and says, take heed to those who do not obey the things written in this letter and have nothing to do with them. Now, do not treat them as an enemy, but as a Brother. And so the, the reality is this, it, it's we, one thing, we, we expect the world to sin, and we call them from their sin, but the scriptures are very, very clear, we sometimes play fast and light with it. We divide, you know, each individual, individual before God, there is a corporate entity, and the, the, each is a body. Sometimes the scriptures will even give it in the, in the concepts of like a lump of dough. You know what a little leaven in the lump of dough does? It can leaven the whole lump. You know what happens if you get a little rotten spot on an apple? Thankfully, it doesn't spread, does it? No, it does. I mean, again, the notion becomes like this. Is anyone these days going to see a melanoma spot on their body and say, well, it's only one spot? Spot. I'll worry about that when it covers my whole body. Does that make sense? No, because what may only be a spot there, its effect and influence can indeed be going beyond the surface of what can be seen. And we see this with Jezebel. There was a tolerance with Jezebel. Next thing you know, there are those following Jezebel. There are, there's a group in the church that they're even being referred to as Jezebel's children. I'll tell you what, and this is a tragic reality. Sin and compromise are exceedingly contagious. Yeah. And, and Jezebel has gone down that path and we see this, um, this sad Indictment that is against them this false prophetess who's who's bringing false teaching and false practice and we've got to understand this Well false teaching. What's the problem with that wrong? Believing leads to wrong behaving There is not a divide between what we believe and what we do It affects how we worship it affects how we speak to one another it affects how we live our faith and our understanding of God, it, it affects how we preach the gospel. I mean, you'll note that in time. Those who, who have a, a humble understanding of the sovereignty of God and his grace and the gospel revealed in the scripture, there, there's a different approach. It's not designed to mali- manipulate. It's not designed like, like a car salesman to somehow, you know, close the deal and make the sale. It's designed to deliver with absolute clarity the gospel, the promises that attend to the gospel, and the curses for those who remain in disobedience. And it it may come with an urging, it may come with a pleading, but it's not going to manipulate, it's not going to peddle, it's not going to water down, it's not going to twist it away in some compromise and so here here's the word that is and and it is followed with some severe injunctions look what it says in verse 21 and following and and even this i'm amazed at this god says i gave her time to repent as she began to compromise in her sin god could have could have squashed her and maybe we think he should have he gave her time to repent. During the time given to repent, did she repent? No. She actually drew others to follow her. And it says, God says, I'm going to throw her on a sickbed. Even that, I look at that and say, what a patient God. What a merciful God. Not a, uh, he gave her time to repent. Didn't end her right there. Even it's going to be a staged discipline. Throw her on discipline. I was thinking, throw her in the grave, my friend. No. Throw her in a sickbed. And then what? Into great tribulation. And then unless they repent. What a patient God. His patience toward us is meant to lead us to repentance. Do not take lightly the mercy and patience of God. And even though I look at that a, and, and there's a part of me that's, that's, that's almost crying out, God, go get her root her out and clean her out she's a disease in that church be done with her but i look at god's patience at mercy and i think i'm glad that that's exhibited towards me god i'm thankful for that that patience and mercy that 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 i experience every day and that i experience from you at times where i have not even properly taken note of my sin that you know all too well and then finally if She and her children remain unrepentant. Ultimately, he will strike her children dead. Death and condemnation is going to result from this. And then, uh, but further, he, he follows that with a simple instruction. And look at this simple instruction in verse 24 and 25. To the rest of you in Thyatira. And what she was doing is so bad it was referred to as the deep things of Satan the deep things because they're deceitful they're tricky they masquerade as it's it's not easily seen on the surface well that won't really hurt anybody that won't really do anything the the slow steps of a slide the deep things of saying we, we'll we'll do this we'll we'll participate we'll compromise but you know the pleasure that this sin brings us we'll thank god for it doesn't that make it okay we'll receive it all you know Um, all things are permissible so we'll receive it all with thanksgiving no (laughs) all kinds of things are permissible but murder is not theft is not immorality is not idolatry is not covetous is not those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God the simple thing to them in Thyatira he says this hold fast to what you have until I come that's it hold fast to what you have the things that you've been doing the things that I've commended stay with those continue that growth continue that progress the only fix that you've got to do is stop tolerating Jezebel and the effect of her children other than that stay the course and that's the, that's the beautiful, beautiful thing about it. The general calling of the things that God has called us to do. And this is one of the things that often gets me confused in this world. You know, people will say, you know, I, I, I just wonder what God wants me to do. If I knew what God wants me to do, I'd do it. And maybe they're referring to a job or what school to go to or, 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 or what person to marry or ask out or, or, or whatever it may be. You know, if only God would tell me what he wants from me, I'd do it. While forgetting, the scriptures are full of things where God clearly tells us what he wants us to do. To conduct ourselves in holiness. Uh, to be faithful. To shun malice and youthful lusts. To pursue unity and faithfulness. To declare the gospel with an unrelenting uh, graciousness. I mean, all uh, no, well, I Yeah, I know all of that. Are you doing that? Well, I'm not really asking what God wants me to do generally as the way of my life. I I just want what God God wants me to do right here. I'm willing to do what God wants me to do right here. All that other stuff that that I know God wants me to do, I'm not all that interested in it right now. God help us (laughs) ought not be that way. Simple instruction, this church at Thyatira, hold fast to that. And some some special incentives. I'm going to have to close with this. The special incentives is I will give authority over the nations to rule with an iron rod. And I will give to him the morning star. Again, we read it in the Psalm 2 in the opening of our service this day. And that statement really, in that, it, that messianic statement that Christ will be the one who will receive that scepter, who will rule the nations with an iron rod. And here the scripture speaks of us sharing in that with him. Indeed, if you go to the end of this chapter, basically Jesus describes himself uh, in Revelation 22 16 Jesus says this I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches for I am the root of David uh, the root of Jesse the descendant of David the bright and morning star this is who I am and what is what does Jesus say I will give you authority to rule over the nations even as my father gave me authority. you're going to share in my inheritance you're going to share in my rule you're going to share in this responsibility And further than that, it ends by saying this, verse 28, uh, and, and I will give him the morning star. You know, as mysterious as that is, at the end of the book, he says, he is the morning star. Look, we don't just want the gifts and privileges that he brings and gives. We want him. We want to be with Him. If it, it, we're thankful for the gifts. We're thankful for the honor. We're thankful for, for the uh, whatever millennial or eternal purposes that God has to unfold these promises. We are thankful for them. But it's not just those promises of inheritance and what we get. I will not only give you all of these things. I give you me. I give you the morning star. Isn't that glorious? He who has an ear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is for us to have spent this time, this morning, considering these things. And there's so much in this chapter that uh, we really don't want to lose. And I just pray that you would impress these things upon us. What a staggering introduction of who you are as the son of God, of all that you uh, are in terms of your authority. Your discernment, your perfect judgment, and even the power with which you will display it. God, you are a mighty judge, not one to be taken lightly. Lord, we thank you for that superb inspection that they at that church had. And we we long that we would... As a church and to a, and further w- as individuals within the church that such descriptions would be of us. That we would be cultivating these things and increasing in them and growing in them. That we would not be short-sighted. Lord, we see the indictment that was given against them. And we pray that we would not have areas of compromise, oversight, and weakness. Lord, we want to honor you in everything. May we heed that its simple instruction to hold fast to you. And we thank you for those glorious incentives that you've laid out for those who conquer. And we know that those who conquer are those who conquer by the grace and faith that you provide. And we thank you that your promises are not only for the things that we will get and the work that we will do, but it is also for our our union and nearness and enjoyment of you. Lord, may we long for the appearing of our Savior for who you are, that we will see you and share in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.